we've surveyed something like 500 candidates who have all left a job in the previous four months. They talk about three things that consistently would cause them to leave a job, and it's... You clearly know your stuff when it comes to hiring and talent for startups and scale-ups. There's so much valuable information that we can share around this. People are one of the most, if not the most important things in building a successful business. From a hiring perspective, we work across six pillars, so to run through them briefly. Wow, there's quite a bit on back there. Research shows that looking at user experience, education, many of the things that go back to the CV, we judge from two sheets of A4, really poor indicators of future performance. Our listeners will be taking away a lot of notes from this because these are things that we don't really get taught how to do. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Yeah, brilliant to be here. Like, I think really excited about it because you obviously champion the intersection of businesses being about profit and about good rather than choosing between the two. And I think it really resonates with me from a hiring perspective because I think increasingly people are thinking beyond the paycheck and thinking about the impact they're doing. And I think there's a similar intersection there where the companies that can cover both those areas will be the best business of the future. So really excited to explore it today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that you resonate with our little kind of uh, mission that we're going for. Uh, and it's great to have, you pe- to have people like you here. You've got extensive experience working with uh, both on the corporate side, but also on the startups and scale-up side, and you're working within talent, right? So this is something you come across a lot. And I'm, one of the things I'm really curious to explore today is kind of your views and how things have shifted over time as well. I'm sure you... Yeah, sure. I think I've uh, I've got the benefit of a lot of experience, and there's definitely been some things that have been constant, but a lot of things are different compared to 20-odd years ago when I came into this space. Wow, wow. Can you maybe actually, can we start there? Can you maybe tell us a little bit about your sort of background, how you got into what you're doing now? Because I saw that you've got history with big corporate companies as well, right? Yeah, I think like many people, you know, recruitment wasn't something that was flagged by my career as advisor and that I was desperately working towards getting into. But post-university, something that I explored the world of sales, really enjoyed the meritocracy of that. And recruitment was a great way, my hope, to begin with was that it wasn't simply a transactional sales environment it was where you could build much more meaningful relationships and also get the rewards from being good at your job um had a really good experience learning the trade at a much bigger company and about 15 years ago then from somebody that i'd met while working there isl was formed and uh and there's been various kind of guises to the business over that time but i think one thing that's been consistent is that we want to be a business that is not simply about the bottom line, and that's clearly important, but also about the people, the impact, and you know, and that's definitely something that um, hopefully ties in some of the stuff we can talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and can I maybe start with the why? You know, in the words of the the wise wise leaders out there who say, "Start with why." Um, why do you give a crap about? Um, impact or leaving something doing that positive side of things as well as the the business side of things i think maybe if you'd ask a a 21 year old alan how much they cared about it then the reality is probably not as much as i do today so i think as you go through life obviously you know thoughts evolve and you and you start to think about more meaningful things you know part of that i think is i've got a couple of kids you know six and nine year old and so you start to see the world differently um and i think also within recruitment it's um it's an industry i love but i also understand why it suffers from a reputational perspective in many ways 
And so part of what our Talent is all about and what matters to me personally is standing out for the norms and and showing that we we don't need to be the recruiters that you might put at the bottom of a rung of, you know, respected professions alongside estate agents and bankers, there can be much more meaningful good that we're doing. And I think that's one of the reasons why working in startups is something that I really enjoy because you get to work with the founders of the business. I get excited by the energy in what they're building and by the innovation behind what they're doing. And I am now much more confident that I can demonstrate the value that we're adding to them, which isn't simply around the size of the invoices, but it's helping them to find good people, which clearly makes them able to achieve a much more oversized impact in their business. Yeah, and, and there's quite a bit to unpack there. This episode is brought to you by EcoSwap. EcoSwap is bringing together the UK's favorite eco-friendly high street brands onto a single gift card, allowing you to give the gift of choice, where your loved ones can choose from brands such as The Body Shop, Rituals, Toast Brewing, The National Trust, and many, many more. And our gift to our listeners is 10% off your first purchase with EcoSwap when you use the code GOODFORPROFIT at checkout. What sets EcoSwap apart is their commitment to sustainability and ethics. They meticulously curate their brand selection, ensuring that each one meets rigorous standards set by esteemed certifiers such as B Corp, 1% for the Planet, Climate Neutral, or they're a UK registered charity. With EcoSwap, you're not just giving a gift. You're choosing to support the UK's best brands that are genuinely committed to benefiting both people and planet. So go ahead, give an EcoSwap gift card today. Visit ecoswap.uk and use the code GOODFORPROFIT at checkout. That's good for profit with no spaces for your 10% off your first order today. Let's start with the ranking of the different professions. <laughs> so you mentioned, you mentioned kind of being on the same level as state agents and recruiters and so on. I would, so I would say, it, based on my perception of kind of this stuff, and by the way, my most previous startup experience was uh, AI, HR, slash recruitment, uh, tech. So I understand a lot of the, um, the the general kind of vibe that you get when you speak with someone and they're like, what do you do? And you say, oh yeah, we've got a, an HR company or a recruitment company or whatever. And there's an immediate sort of something in the air about, oh, okay, am I talking to a recruiter now, right? Um, so let, let's, talk, let's talk a bit about that. I feel like it goes state agent and then recruiter. Like I feel there's like a, there's a bit of a difference there. No, I'm, I'm just joking, of course. Um, but there is, I agree. There is definitely, um, there's definitely a bit of a, a, a bit of a weird kind of expectation around talking to recruiters. And but why do you think that is? And, it, and is that the same across European, US, and different markets, or just the UK? And most of my exposure is to the UK, so that's what I could talk most meaningfully about. But um, I think that so one of the things I, I love about the industry is that it has lower barriers to entry. So you know, no matter what your background not about where you grew up or where you went to school or the logos you've got on your cv anybody can come into it and with the right approach the right tools and right resources around them they can build a successful business and i, and I love that but i think that also plays into one of the challenges around reputation because of the low barriers of entry there's maybe thirty thousand recruiters in the uk so there's clearly some brilliant ones there and you know i would hope it's probably if you look to the data, it's much more than people might perceive that are doing good and, and making a real difference. And, and the industry is, you know, tens of billions of pounds. So I think you can look at that and realize that there is a lot of value there over and above 
reputationally what might be there. So with the low barriers to entry and, you know, with no qualifications or no standards really to work around, that does create a challenge around the, um, yeah, the, the reputation and, and then sort of the cowboy reputation. I remember um, being at an event where there was a group of founders a few years ago and there was maybe five or six people talking and it was very much like, hey, you know, what do you do? And to your point earlier, you know, so the tech CEO, you know, manufacturing tech leader, et cetera. And what do you do? I'm a recruiter. And one of the CEOs there, maybe I was imagining it a little bit more with hindsight, but very much turned his shoulder and and and, and made sure it's left up the group. And and, I, and I've, I've not mentioned it to him, but I, I've since got to know him over the last couple of years and, you know, get on really well with him. I know that he recognizes the value in what we've done for the people that he knows, but it's that judgment on the surface you're a recruiter therefore i'm putting you down that ranking and i get that to to add value in business you need to be known you need to be liked you need to be trusted you know in various degrees and the trust is clearly the area where a lot of recruitment companies have to work really hard but i think taking responsibility for that is is important and not simply saying things but through your actions and through your network being able to demonstrate the value rather than um assuming that people will see it from the outset Okay. Yeah, that made that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, do you think the the concept? I, and I don't know whether your what your model is within recruitment, but do you think the concept of having it be a commission based uh, approach? Do you think that makes it worse or better, or did you think that affects it at all? Got mixed views. I think that. So some of the clients we work with, we work on a subscription model. So one of our best clients for the last couple of years, a business called Clue Software, they pay us a fixed amount per month and we do all their hiring. That does remove some of the challenges around commission where we're not aligned to maximizing the salary of the individual because that has a influence on our fee. And whether we hire someone that we've got out to headhunt someone that's applied to an adjunct we're running with their brand or we've leveraged their network, we become neutral where that source is. So there's an element of the commission there. I would broaden it out to look at the model within recruitment where the majority of recruitment businesses are charging a percentage of salary and working on a contingent basis. So I could probably you know talk for an hour on that in itself, but recently you know published some content on it and, and thought about it quite long and hard and um, there's, there's many factors where I think that breaks down. Going back to the maximizing salary, if I'm working on a flat percentage, my incentive, you come to me with a role between 70 and 80,000. Logically, I'm only going to send you people at 80,000 rather than 70. So you're not seeing the best candidates. Maybe there's issues around lacking diversity there because I'm gravitating towards the ones that are paid better rather than the ones that can do the job better. The whole model of the expectation within recruitment versus a lawyer or an accountant that you only pay if you get the end result rather than getting paid for effort probably plays into some of the rightful challenges around quality. If you're expecting people to speculate, then there's an argument that if I only place one in three of the jobs I'm working because I'm working on a contingent basis, then if you're the person I'm successful with, to a certain extent, you're subsidizing the two people that I've failed with. And my incentive is to get a result quickly rather than to work in a more committed and longer term way. So we we do do some of that still. It's something that we've not been perhaps brave enough in a way to 
let go of entirely. But last year, 70% of our business was retained or subscription. And the the transformation from the relationship, partly the commitment that is there from both sides at the outset, but the the long-term nature then of those relationships is uh, where it's a much more enjoyable place to be. It, it is more profitable, which is great because you're getting a better return for your efforts. But it's also about the the journey along the way. And you know, I'll be working with people that um, I guess I know, like, and trust myself as much as I have to demonstrate that to them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that that's uh yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um to go away from that kind of commission based only model. So one of the things that when I was looking into this industry, for example, um one of the things I was looking at was that it seems that there is an incentive misalignment here in that if I'm not, if you're going to be, if I'm going to be building a software that's going to provide the best um, talent out there and the best matching and so on out there, um, you're not just paying for getting that higher into the company and then so paying a commission on top of that. You're also paying for everything else that goes on in between. You're paying for the help with refining the job description to make sure it can attract better people and bring more diverse talent to you. There's a lot of things included in, as part of the recruitment process that are beyond just filling the role. And then one of the other issues that I came across a lot was that the fundamental, most important metric in most corporates and in most companies that we worked with was fundamentally time to hire. But when you asked people, what is your most important metric? That's not what they said. They would turn around and say, diversity and inclusion or whatever thing they feel like they should be saying but when you dig down to it and you really dig into what metrics are you tracked by day to day at work what are your KPIs ultimately it's time to hire and so it, I also saw a bit of incentive misalignment coming from there and then that kind of kind of seeps through to when they're working with external agencies and so on do, do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah I think there's, there's loads to explore there I think that um in my mind, the true measure of the success that I would have as a you know as a talent partner to businesses and, and providing recruitment services is probably only realised eighteen months down the line. So if Could I was to talk to you about how I would make, job. yeah, exactly. Yeah. In eighteen months' time, you say, "Great, you know, Amir, who you've placed with us is amazing, and he's progressed, and the impact and the values and so much you talk about that would be so far away from whether we hired him in twenty-one days or it took twenty-eight. So. But the the, the 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 industry isn't built around that. Maybe there's some innovation around being, you know, as much as a client may come to me if someone didn't work out after a month and expect a rebate, there isn't the flip side of that, that if they were best ever the employee, they would come back to me in 12 months' time and offer to double my fee with hindsight. So I'm sure there's some some innovation to be explored. But you're right, I think the um, the way in which hiring is done can be very transactional. And it feels that if you... We're trying to explain it logically to someone with no experience of the industry or of hiring in general and say, well, let's take it as a given that people are one of the most, if not the most important things in building a successful business. And you ask them how they then worked with recruiters in the majority of ways. And they would say, well, we send them two pages of A4, our job spec. They then send us two pages of A4 around the candidate and we expect a really great fit from that. And of course, they they interview them and they assess them. Boiling it, but, but yeah, you know, it, yeah, it doesn't, Boiling doesn't it seem down to have to any logic is, when you describe it's it like that. Interesting, yeah, such an interesting thought experiment to actually boil it down to that slide. That is what is happening. Wow. Yeah, and so we looked at 
um, a couple of years ago, we went through a rebrand and, you know, over the last 15 years, ISL has worked with public sector, NHS, local authorities, worked with big companies, big logos, FTSE 100s, and over the last few years, the focus on startups. And we ended up there for a few different reasons, partly because like I mentioned earlier, I enjoy talking to founders and you don't get that opportunity if you're engaging with Tesco, you know, you're going to be talking to people that are much more procurement driven and process driven. But it was also about where can we maximize the value? And of course, CVs are one of the key metrics and interviews and sending those two sheets of A4 and receiving them in return. But realistically, the value was on those things you're talking about. So we, within ISO Talent, we have the aptly named talent methodology, which has six pillars to it. And really only a couple of those smaller blocks within the pillars are about what recruitment is often perceived as. When we engaged with a company last year, Student Crowd, we were referred in by their investors. They probably spent six or seven hours with me and my team before we even sent a CV. And a lot of that was on those areas that you touched on a minute ago, defining what they're looking for, helping them look at their reward benchmarking, making sure as they close their investment round that they were able to then move quickly when the hiring started in anger. So perhaps we would be looked favorably with their time to hire from the point the job went live. We placed, I think, four roles in three weeks with them. But we couldn't have done that without being engaged for the two months beforehand, without spending those hours understanding so much about them as a business, their value, their cultures, as well as being able to help them understand how other startups tackle the same problem and challenged them a bit on whether they were looking for senior or junior people. Should they split out sales and marketing? Should they have them under one unit? And they had a great team already. So we were engaged to help them diversify their network and bring in some SAFSP expertise to help them post their seed funding round. But they weren't going to write off the people they had there at the moment. So part of the value was making sure they were rewarding those people properly, that they were aligned with the market. So clearly what they wouldn't want to do is recruit a lot of new people and at the same time lose some of the value people that got them to that point. And there's so, there's so much more that perhaps not every recruitment company is able to offer, but I'm really confident if you talk to a lot of the startups and scale-ups that we'd worked with, they would they probably would describe us as a recruiter, but I hope much more meaningfully they would see that broader talent partner, talent advisor, whatever label we try and put on it to differentiate somewhat what we do that is much more than that. And it's cradle to grave is the wrong metaphor because of the the way it looks. But yeah, it's, it's start to finish across the whole talent life cycle rather than simply send a CV, send an invoice, and then move on to the next relationship. Yeah. And... You rightfully said at the start that building a team is, I mean, this the most important part is having that team, the right team in place. And we've talked quite a bit about that on the podcast recently with um, various guests. We even did a quick special um, sort of episode on team and culture because it's so important to businesses. And I'm really happy that we're having this chat today is kind of to, to continue that conversation around team and, and how important it is. Um, you mentioned six pillars earlier on um, to the work that you do. I'd love to maybe just go through a quick bit of uh, that and then we can jump on to some of the good, the bad and the ugly uh, that you've come across with a lot of the different companies that you've worked with. I'm sure it'd be very valuable for a lot of our listeners. 
But first, yeah, yeah indeed, I'll make sure to uh, keep the ugly names to myself. Oh, and hundred um, percent, yeah. The... Unless you really don't like that, I'm joking, then. No, 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 keep the names to yourself for sure. <laughs> so we, um, yeah, so so we work across those six pillars. So to run through them briefly, we like I mentioned, it, it it's it's talent, which obviously fits nicely with the uh, the area we're in. So the first one is is the the T, which is around the the talent strategy. A is about attracting the best. So a lot of that plays into employer branding and, and marketing yourself. The L is locating the talent and making sure you're not being too one-dimensional and focusing simply on active candidates and adverts and thinking that's a recruitment strategy versus speaking at events and, and so much more you can do to build your employer brand. Then, of course, you need to make sure you're getting the right people. So E is about evaluating talent. And part of that is the upfront work rather than jumping into a room and making a judgment within the first few seconds and, and risking all sorts of bias. So after you've evaluated people, let's assume that the offer process is not simple, but hopefully a minor part. The N is nurturing the talent. I've seen so many companies that have got a great hiring process. And at that point where someone's excitement and enthusiasm is up here, they miss some really easy things around onboarding and the first few months, which are so important to maximize someone's potential. And then we end up with the, the the second T, so the the team retention and making sure you're not solving one problem with recruitment, bringing people in, but losing them at the bottom of the funnel. So I don't believe 100% retention is something you should necessarily aim for, but clearly you can't build a successful team simply by recruiting. It has to be about retention as well. Yeah, so keen to dig more into that as well. You know, which areas of the business tend to have more or less retention what are the some the averages and so on but but let, let's jump into some i want to hear some stories some uh some uh perhaps war stories but also some some good ones um a lot of people listening to this will be entrepreneurs that are building their own companies right they want to learn from everyone out there who's done this already and they want to learn from the experts to understand different areas of business really well your areas around talent and hiring and recruitment and so on you get you understand this area really well you've been working in it for years with a lot of startups and scale-ups and so on. So I think some some of your experience, that there's so much valuable information that we can share with our listeners around this. Um, from your experience, what have been, you know, let's start maybe like with some of the best talent experiences that you've seen or one of the best companies that you've worked with. And then what's been one of the worst ones that you've seen? And, and you know, regardless of whether you helped them make it better or not, but just curious to kind of look at that contrast to start with. We, we get to work with some really super exciting businesses and a lot of the time at the point we're working with them, whether we know them personally or been referred by their investors or maybe their chair or one of their advisors, we get to see and be part of that inflection point often when they're going from founding to scaling. So we worked with over 30 businesses last year and most of those were seed or series A funded startups that are on a bit of a growth mission. They are going from founding to scaling team and they recognize that part of that is being able to perhaps move from that early years building a business where as much as you might think Alan and ISL Talent could do a brilliant job, you probably don't have the resources to engage with us. So we'll always help people and educate and advise people at that stage. But commercially, it's probably that seed to series B where we're 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 following that journey. So um I think rather than going from your friends, families, and fools hiring, you then get to be a bit more grown up. 
some companies adjust to that much more easily than others and, and some founders embrace that and some resist it. I mentioned Clue Software we've worked with really well over the last couple of years and that's been really enjoyable because we got to know their founders, we placed some of their key leadership team, we've been with them from maybe employee 15 or 16 up to around 70 or 80 people now and we've made the majority of those hires. So I think as they carry on this next stage of their journey, they just this week announced a further four million pounds of funding, then perhaps the the model evolves and we don't work them in quite the same way. But that, that journey, being able to see the growth of the business has been really exciting. And I think very much tying into today's subject, one of the things that they're a SaaS business. So on the face of it, you know, like many other businesses out there, and they do forensic investigation software, which might not mean much to your audience, but if you talk to their team, and we've done this and used this to be able to attract great talent and ask them what they did today, they would talk about anything that is generic across the SaaS business. I wrote a line of code. I put plans together for a marketing event. I helped a customer work through our software. But if you were to ask them, so what? And what was the impact of what they did? That very much plays into the customers they serve. So help to solve child sex trafficking or working with UEFA, one of their clients, to help organize crime and avoid sort of betting issues. So there's a massive impact there that excites us when we work with them. But from a practical point of view, also means that when we go out to a great account exec or head of customer success, because of the way we work with Clue, where we use their brand rather than the ISL talent brand, we are able to bring that story to life and get much more engagement from candidates. And the candidates that join them, they of course get paid a fair wage, a decent wage. But so many of them say, I wasn't really looking for a job, but something about the Clue story resonated with me. I can see the impact of what they're doing. I can see they're doing something really meaningful and that really excites me. And that's encouraged me to move from my good job I have now to one which I think could be a great job. And there's 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 so much value that Clue have got from that and other businesses like that. So we don't only work with businesses that might fit the the tech for good or the good for profit sure. uh, bucket, but so much more of what we're doing now is in that space where founders can talk about impact. And I can see the excitement my team have from that. And again, going back to practical sort of things, the ease of which we can recruit talent for them versus if we looked at the, the tech for bad side of things, then um, that Whatever becomes that much is. more challenging. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe going back to the commercial model, arguably we should be charging those companies twice as much because we're having to work so much harder to find them great talent because that's not where the majority of people want to work. That's very refreshing to hear um, that the majority of people are looking for sort of impact type jobs now and, and are looking to have that piece. Have you seen that? Is, is that a shade trend you've seen over time? 100%. I think maybe it's one of those things that um, would have been there without the pandemic. And it definitely feels that that we went through a, a loss, whether it's a, you know, a loss of our loved ones, a loss of our liberty, you know, uh, so many things have caused us to reflect. And I believe that this is one of those things that many more people have said, I'm no longer going to slip into Mon London Monday to Friday, nine to five to work for a bank to pick on them unfairly. 
I want to be able to see a positive impact in what I'm doing. And that looks very different to different people, but for an increasingly strong, large amount of the talent pool, I believe they're then looking for purpose and impact. So I don't think by any means that every candidate comes to us saying, Alan, my next job, I need to be able to clearly see how it's solving one of the 17 United Nations sustainable development goals. But for some candidates, that is something that will influence their choices. Even if they're not thinking about one of those big grand goals, they are thinking about coming back from work each day, being able to be a bit prouder of the meaning and impact. And so salary, job titles, those are still things that play a massive part in why people take jobs. And if if you get a job and we're sitting in the pub and talking about it, then probably one of the first things you say is, it's brilliant, they're going to make me a head of sales and they're going to pay me 100000 but over time, the things that you get really excited about and you talk to me about when we catch up in three or six months' time is you either talk about the excitement from what you're doing and being able to say the impact. The flip side is that what you don't talk about is hating your job because you don't really give a shit about it and because you can't see the point in what you're doing. Whereas for those businesses that aren't able to demonstrate that impact, I think you probably find that person in the pubs moaning a lot more about that and, and ultimately will make the decision to leave or perhaps even worse won't leave but will stay there and you know and won't be making the impact that you hired them for yeah absolutely and kind of going back to the impact side so you're seeing more candidates still are talking about this um are you seeing any trends with demographic so age demographics for example age ranges um do you work with people across the board by the way so maybe let me let me ask you that first in terms of the talent that you work with um do you tend to work with talent across most age groups the moment we probably gravitate towards the um the more experienced hires the reality is if you're hiring at the the graduate or the entry level then there's a number of ways you can do that without having to pay a fee to a recruiter so we do make those junior hires but most of what we do is mid senior leadership hires so therefore we are slightly geared towards the the older spectrum of the market rather than seeing across all of it but no doubt there are there are trends that are different from the 50-year-olds than the 25-year-olds, but I do see these things across the board. I think that um, I was hosting a lunch yesterday for nine or 10 chief commercial officers, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm 45, and you know, one of the guys I was talking to, similar age, one of the things we were talking about was having to unlearn some of the things that were maybe important to us or simply part of the hiring and the way of working when we came into our career versus the people that we might hire into our teams now. For example, I think that the expectation when I came into the workforce was that your employer had you from nine in the morning till five in the afternoon and you were their property almost at that point. And after that, they, they wouldn't care about you. Whereas now, there's much more we've spent you know the last few years living at home working at you know the office whatever it may also working from home and living in the office in some ways and those two worlds have combined and as part of that another trend is that employers have to if they want to be competitive think much more holistically about their team and about the 24 hours of their employee rather than simply the eight hours that they're coming into the office yeah yeah and it's definitely been a shift it's been it's been a very interesting shift um 
one of the things that fascinated me about this shift is what it looks like in different parts of the world, and we'll come on to that later as well. Um, but kind of carrying on with the sort of demographics and the change of one, it really is interesting to hear that the, I suppose it probably was the pandemic, um, it had quite an effect on everyone. It wasn't just, because there's an easy argument to make and say, you know, younger people generally are being a little, little bit more aware or cautious about the impact they're making in the world. Um, sort of Gen Z-ish kind of groups and, you know, maybe most millennials as well probably are kind of thinking, right, well, it's not just about money and whatever, but it's also about what positive change am I going to make in the world while I'm alive. Um, people tend to sort of think that maybe the older generation doesn't care as much about that. You know, the sort of uh, baby boomers or Gen X or whatever, whatever we call them. Um, but it's quite interesting to hear that you're seeing this kind of shift that's been happening across the board. It's, it's different sort of the general kind of narrative that I tend to see online. I think the, the generations do have a different lens on things. I was walking down, I was walking my nine-year-old son to school uh, last year and he saw someone drop a crisp packet on the floor. So my judgment on that was uh, that person's being messy and, and tidy. And he mentioned something along the lines of, well, daddy, that person's harming the planet. So there is that generational perspective that is very different. But I think we all recognize that we need to take action against some of the world's much bigger problems and whatever that looks like for the stage we're at. There's, there's many execs that have come to me over the last couple of years, and not all of them, but many of them talk about wanting to be able to see the impact and the purpose behind what they're doing. So I think it definitely is across the, across the spectrum of the, the workforce and across all those spectrums, a trend that has moved on significantly in recent times and it feels there's only going in in one direction yeah yeah do you have any personal thoughts on that is there something that excites you is there something that you're thinking i mean you're feeling different about or yeah i i see that um i think there's a challenge in this space sometimes that the perception is that you're either doing something for good <clears throat> or you're doing something for commercial gain. And I have seen that within my business as well. Like I said, we don't only work with companies that would come into the the good for profit or the, the tech for good space. And that's partly because I'm running a business and there is a commercial reality to it. But I do believe that the, the winners that emerge from the startup world, many more of them will be showing the positive impact of what they're doing. And therefore, both in terms of what I care about personally, but also what I care about from a business perspective, I want to be able to align more in that space and recognize that similar to how we might talk about AI now, it's it's an emerging space. It's something that is not crystal clear what it looks like. There's a responsibility as a business leader to learn more about it. And that has to, to be, you know, long lasting, has to resonate with your values in some way, but also has to be an area you, you lean into so that you understand more about it and remove some of those biases you have from how you were brought up into the world to make sure you're thinking about the future rather than simply the past. Yeah. But it is an interesting and a great point you mentioned as well that, <clears throat> excuse me, it doesn't have to be just one or the other. And that that's the thing. And it's not that, it's not that if you're just doing things for commercial gain, that's a, a bad thing in a way. It, it's like, it's, it's as in, I think it's, it's, an, it's a fine line that we need to draw at one point and think, you know, Yes, we should, if you can make, 
if you can fix things in the world and do better in the world and make a bigger positive impact beyond commercial gain, as well as do something that is commercially viable, that's fantastic. That is like the ultimate, that's the ultimate aim, right? That's the best thing. But to expect every single person on the planet to be doing that, I feel like it's a bit, it might be a little bit too far. Um, I, I don't know. That That's just, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think about it realistically. You know, there is, there are 8 billion people on the planet, as in not everyone's going to feel the same way. If we can encourage more and more people to do that, great, right? But, but ultimately not everyone's going to feel the same way. <laughs> no, and not everybody has the same role to play. You know, I love being a founder. I also suffer some of the challenges around that. And I think it's something that is a, it's a great route to consider. I go to universities in Bristol where we're based and talk to some of the students there. And part of that is sharing my story as a founder, as well as helping them understand the landscape within startups. So they consider that as a great opportunity rather than simply looking for the corporate. But it's not right environment for everybody. Some people should choose different routes and different paths and contribute in different ways. So 100% I agree, we shouldn't we shouldn't look at everybody the same. We shouldn't expect the same for everybody. And hopefully there's there's not many of those 8 billion people that are needed to make an impact to actually see the results. But clearly there's there's yeah, there's a there's a role and an opportunity there for, for many people. Absolutely. And there's definitely room for more. I mean, this is ultimately we wouldn't be doing this or having this conversation. There's definitely room for more uh, to be done. There are many problems that exist around the world that need fixing and can be done in a in a way that's profitable and and you know gives value to shareholders. So um some of those problems will require government incentives and so on, but but that's that's a separate thing. But um but nonetheless there is definitely room room for more, but it doesn't mean that we should expect every single person to, to be doing it. That, that's also, I think, an important point because, and, I, and I, this is one of the things that I would love to get your thoughts on, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of black and white thinking. I'm, I'm really not. Um, and I, I often see that um, things can start to get quite black and white when it comes to things like this. So for example, you know, it's either you're impact driven or you're not. It's either you are you care about diversity or you don't. It's either whatever or whatever, and it's and it's just a lot of that that kind of a lot of that conversation fueling things online and thinking like there is a bit more nuance to a lot of these things. And one of those nuanced topics that I really wanted to talk about, um, and maybe you've mentioned a bit of the good, some of the companies you've spoken with. Maybe you can touch a bit on the ugly now and then talk about a bit of that nuance. Um, is uh, around team and culture. So you will, I would imagine, have come across companies that have um, very different types of cultures internally and very different types of team makeups. Um, I don't know if you've come across any of this, but have you come across anyone, any companies that have a culture that would be deemed as bad or toxic um, in, in kind of gen general terms? Yes, in simple answer. Yeah. And having worked with hundreds of businesses and also had the benefit of talking to thousands of candidates over the year. Of course, one time, one of the times in which people will come to me is when they're looking for a job. And sometimes that's not because where they are is bad, but a lot of the time it will be because they're working in an environment they're not enjoying. And so much a part of that would be because there's a, a toxic culture or one that doesn't align with their values. Of course, you're only seeing or hearing one side of the story and maybe that's not a perfect perspective but no doubt culture is 
so important to hire and retain people and the impact of however you define good or bad. And that's definitely an area that you should give some consideration to can make a big deal to your ability to, to build the best team. We've done a potential report over the last few years. And I think over a couple of editions, we've surveyed something like 500 candidates who have all left a job in the previous four months. They talk about three things that consistently would cause them to to leave a job and it's uh it was we shared the research and sifted last year and they cleverly termed it the, the three c's so compensation being one of them so money matters and you need to get that right rather than assume that people even if you have a positive impact will work for free or at a vastly reduced rate but it's never been the top reason people have left a job so it's always been number three and what's shifted but not meaningfully over the last couple of years. One and two, the other two C's, career progression and culture. And I think if you talk to anybody that's had some exposure to the world of work, whether it's as an employee, a founder or both, they would talk about the one to progress and do more of what they're good at, what they enjoy. And they would also, over and above their job title and salary, they would talk about the culture, the values, the people they work with, the environment. And that's a massive part of how you can have more productive, and engage teams, but also how you individually can walk away at the end of the day, enjoying the environment you're in, the, the culture and the values is a is a huge part of it. Some some founders recognise that, some founders don't. I think also where we're often engaged with that founding to scaling, I don't think you want to take away all your values and start all over again, but you do need to recognise that things will probably change as you go through that scaling journey maybe you go from a slightly more chaotic and risk-orientated culture to one that has a bit more process and stability built into it and that may mean that some of the people that joined you for the first stage of the journey aren't going to be as engaged in the second stage i don't think it you shift 180 in terms of your culture and values but it needs to be not something that's done on day one or day a thousand and the expectation be that either those two will align or that you can join the gaps it's an ongoing and everyday conversation and and so much of it has to come into the the definition on the hiring to get it right so let, let's talk a bit about about that so um from what you've come across and what you've seen uh, when you've spoken to candidates or employer employers uh, either side what have what are some of the traits that have stood out the most to you about company culture um from a positive sense and from a negative sense so you know because the term the term toxic i think we generally intuitively understand what that is or at least perhaps we do perhaps some don't i don't know but you know there's a when when the term is used generally speaking people have a certain idea in mind but maybe it would help as well to kind of clarify a bit more about what are some of the things that lead to having a toxic culture what are the, some of the things that companies do that makes it a bit of a toxic culture or the other way around you know that makes it a positive and, and a great culture to have internally the the pillar to a lot of this that maybe we can jump into and explore in a few different ways is around psychological safety so the ability to speak freely without fear of reprisal or judgment and for that to be seen whether you are the ceo of a business or whether you've been there for one day the, the stories I hear of people from a real positive perspective might be when I'm talking to them at the end of their first week 
and they they talk about the the really solid onboarding process where they weren't simply told here's a laptop here's a log on crack on but they were given a sense even at that early days of belonging to the business and and really understanding the story of the business and the role that they would have to play in it but they maybe said that they were in a meeting on the second day they contributed an idea and someone said great tell me more rather than no you don't understand let's save that for another day and something like that can really signal the difference between an environment where you're maximizing the individuals there and clearly that plays massively into having a diverse team and an inclusive environment versus one that is very hierarchical that lacks autonomy where people are being micromanaged and you are putting people into a box and saying this is the value you can bring rather than allowing them to um, contribute much more than that now i think as part of that you don't want a chaotic environment where you and i are working in a business and you're aiming left i'm aiming right so there needs to be that alignment around the mission and the vision and the values but striking a balance there that we are not all thinking the same and looking the same and with the same perspective because that probably in the long term causes our business to die because we're not innovating so there's there's a lot there but psychological safety for me is a big part of the environment i suppose people coming into if i took a step back and looked at a lot of the conversations we're involved in where someone says right i need to make this higher and they like all of us have a starting point on what that person looks like not physically but in terms of the experience they have and where they might have worked previously and having done a fair bit of training around bias and explored it and looked into the research i think that's probably where one of the um the biggest obstacles comes to building the best team that you sit down and you say right i've got thirty thousand pounds to spend for someone to do an ops role so i need someone who has gone to redbrick university and got to one and that starting point you will find good people that have traveled that path but if you took the time to challenge yourself a little bit on what you're saying there and when you're saying to one degree from redbrick university what is it actually you're looking for maybe it's someone with curiosity and humility who's really strong on problem solving well great they make that the thing you're testing for so that not only would you find people that have come from one route but from several different routes and being able to access a much more diverse talent pool which makes it easier to hire but also means you're you're building a much more inclusive team and ultimately will build a much more successful business because of that but does it make it easier to hire because if i'm thinking so if i'm looking for someone with a 2-1 it's pretty easy to just go and okay well it's on the cv tick right but if I'm looking for for curiosity and let's say I don't know um, coachability uh, or, or whatever, how do you? I I'm I, as a business owner. Um, I, by the there's going to be a lot of me playing devil's advocate here, just just to be clear. So I just don't want anyone to think that they, that these are all my views. Um, but um, as a business owner, um, it might be easier to think, well, I'm just going to tick that box and that's it, done. Okay, but instead of having to go and figure out how to look for curiosity or whatever. So perhaps to that, how is it actually complicated or is it pretty easy for people to kind of look for curiosity and coachability in people? I think it's not easy. Okay. But the research shows that looking at 
years of experience, education, many of the things that go back to the CV, we judge from two sheets of A4, are really poor indicators of future performance. So there is more time that needs to be spent, which pushes out that time to hire perhaps on both the definition and then the exploration of the best candidates. There's probably more engagement you need to do with your co-founders and your stakeholders to define what good looks like. And you do need to rethink the way that you hire and arguably rip up the CV and forget about job descriptions, masquerading as job adverts and, you know, long processes that don't really measure what matters and have that starting point of a blank sheet of paper. And it may require more effort, but going back to your comments on time to hire, if you could build a process that brings you the best people on the market and takes two weeks longer, most of us would say brilliant. And none of us talk about how quickly we hired to measure the impact of somebody, but we talk about the, the value they bring. There's, there are some perhaps simple steps that we would work through with the client. So if I was talking to a client about someone's ability to learn, that being a key part of an entry level hire they were making and looks at their entry process, one of the things I was talking to a founder about last year was if you want to test for ability to learn and part of your process is a, um, is a technical exercise they go through, we were debating whether we gave people the information on that beforehand or whether we talked to them about it in the room. And they also wanted to have people that could cope working under pressure. So the process we built for them was interviews where the exercise was given to the person only in the room, so they didn't have that preparation, which was partly testing their ability to work under pressure, but to make sure they were able to make a more credible judgment on someone's ability to learn, they gave them feedback when they went through the first exercise and asked them to go through a version of it again to see how much they took from that, how much they learned as part of giving them the feedback. How did that person respond? Were they very resistant and putting a barrier up? Were they asking questions to explore? So if we go back to what was important to them to hire, it was making sure their process was designed with a bit more effort to give much better outcomes aligned with that versus let's do a technical exercise because that's what everybody does and, and put it into the process without thinking about why it's there and what it's testing for. So it's really honing in on what are the specific traits, skills, would you call it traits? So is that the, would that be the right word to use? The skills? Traits can be part of it. Okay. Yeah, I think um, you know, skills can often cause people, in my experience, to gravitate towards Python and JavaScript or using Instagram as a tool for social media. So there's a valid part of, of that. I think to broaden it out, talking about traits helps people understand that it's not simply the hard or the technical skills and it plays into soft skills, behaviors, values, you know, those those sort of things that are coming back to the CV. And often the job description aren't the ones that get written down on paper, but are where people would really talk about the best matches being made. Maybe the advent of AI helps us bring some tools in that make this process easier. And there is a real danger that if you're moving away from the CV and having conversations with people, that risks elements of bias around people that look like me and talk like me and you know enjoy supporting Liverpool Football Club and drinking red wine and therefore I think they're a great hire but realise that that doesn't become the case. And I, I think part of that then is also 
tying into that founding to scaling inflection point. Often to begin with, people don't have the luxury of choice from a wide talent pool and are naturally, when they're founding the team, they are hiring and working with those that are closest to them. Whereas that next stage, they've got money, maybe they feel that they've got a bit more time because they're not doing everything within a startup and they've got some revenue, some time to pause. So it's then about being intentional as to, well, I need to design our hiring requirements and our hiring process. Not so that it's perfect and we're going to get it right every time. It's a, you know, a naive idea that I don't think any founder could ever say they'd managed to perfect with hindsight, but so that it does measure what matters. So we widen that talent pool to begin with, which maybe means we're dealing with more applications. Maybe it's less because you're you're being really transparent. And another thought on that that comes to mind what you're talking about. Good culture, bad culture, toxic culture is it does matter. Probably what matters more is the the transparency with which you you talk about that. The worst thing you can do is leave these things that are important from a culture and a values perspective until someone's joined you and and been there. So if we pick on Goldman Sachs and say that some people would say they have a bad culture, my argument would be that if they are, and I believe they are, very transparent about that upfront, come in here, work 80 hours a week, we will ask you to do this. You won't be allowed to do this. But after three years, you come out with a load of money, a really strong network, whatever it is the the value exchange is. I don't have a problem with that because they're they're being really clear up front. They will deter the people that is not aligned with, and they will attract the people that that is aligned with. What is far worse, in my experience, is a company that says, "Hey, we're helping to solve the climate crisis here." And we're all good people. And then you come into the environment and it's full of jerks. You're not allowed to speak up. It doesn't have that psychological safety. And they've brought you in on the basis of a, a positive impact and vision, but haven't been transparent around the way things are done around here, the values and the culture. And uh, yeah, again, going back to that transparency and that authenticity, it's really important to be upfront about so many of those things so that you attract and repel rather than assume that what you're doing is going to be right for everybody. That's, uh, wow, yeah. It's, uh, it's again, another refreshing thing to hear. Uh, <laughs> um, I think a lot of the, a lot of the um, online, a lot of the online debate and the general conversation is just that, <clears throat> excuse me, there is right and wrong with culture. There is good and bad, right and wrong, black and white. You're either you're doing this or you're doing that. And if you're not doing that, then you're bad. And if you're doing this, then you're good. Um, and uh, again, it's, I fully understand that there are things that are better and worse to be doing entirely as a company. Um, I, but, but the thing around it is that black and white nature of it of it's either this or that that's the bit that kind of just annoys me a little bit um and i feel like it's refreshing that you know you can that there are different cultures and that we all know there are different cultures and different ways of of that companies work and that some are absolutely insane like they expect you to go in at crazy hours and leave at crazy hours and they work you to the bone right 
And that's not particularly pleasant, um, you know, let's be honest, for the majority of people. But I also recognize that some people like that. Some people might want that. You know, like some people might actually want to go into a company and work stupid hours for two, three years because they're looking to gain a certain level of experience, expertise, network, and so on. And they're willing to make that trade-off. And I, and, and I, I guess the bit that I, I haven't made up my mind on kind of how I view this because I, I don't know enough to be able to make that point, to be honest with you, quite frankly. Uh, but I haven't made up my mind about whether, you know, that's right or wrong. And I don't even know whether I'm in a place to be able to make that judgment and say whether that's right or wrong, because ultimately it's down to what people want, right? So, um, so it's quite refreshing that kind of the approach of transparency of if as, as the most the more important thing fundamentally is that you're transparent about what it is that you're doing as a company. And then people can then choose whether or not they want to be out of that. But but I, I would say there is always going to be a line still, like there is such thing as toxic behavior that you don't want to get into because that can be quite bad. So I think the psychological safety element is also a really important point uh, to keep in mind here, which is, but, but I, what I, I, I think the, the thing I'm trying to get to is that you can have long hours and crazy amount of work and psychological safety at the same time, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think you're right. In a world where 2024, there's going to be many elections, that perception of you have to either be black or white, I think we will see across you know every newspaper we pick up and, and every media site we come to. And there's no doubt you also see it when it comes to culture. Good culture, bad culture. The story as, that sells, right? As if there's a scorebook. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, I think that's when, when going back to the research we did on those five hundred candidates, when we asked them about culture and specifically what were the things that had triggered them to leave the job, from memory, one of the key things that often came out as an issue was the lack of consistency. So, I think that um, consistency, whether someone from the outside might judge you as good or bad, or wherever you put you on that spectrum, which you're right, it's not a black and white one to understand both in terms of bringing people in what they're getting into and although i mentioned your culture may change of course the core of it is going to be consistent over time that probably plays into your values as a founder and therefore the people you hire that are your early employees and often then become your future managers if you don't have that consistency and that way of getting people on the same page there's a real danger that what was a goal good culture becomes toxic you know, if hear people talk about and i think the the managers the middle managers particularly for a scaling business are a really important area to get right and an area i've seen often get wrong candidates will come to me and say well when i was working with the two founders it was great and they brought this new person in and they didn't really align on the values and things changed and that's the bit that I believe you need to work hard as a founder on. And yet some of the practical things that we've done with clients, we've seen them done will be regular sessions on above and below line behaviors, things like team charters to engage the whole team. And if we picked something like strong work ethic, which might become part of our culture and values to really work on what that looks like. Maybe 20 years ago, I would have jumped straight and said, a strong work ethic is about the number of hours you work. So if 
Johnny comes in at seven and leaves at seven, he's demonstrating a strong work ethic. Doesn't matter whether he's Whereas, eating lunch, uh, you know, for five hours or whatever, yeah, whatever playing else. Playing football for doing. a couple of yeah, hours. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Yeah. Whereas now I would look at one of my team and say, hey, if they go and do yoga at 11.30 in the morning so that they come back refreshed and fully focused, I'm I'm fine with that. And I might observe one of my rest of my team who is trying to work hard and demonstrate that strong work ethic, but has got so many notifications pinging off her computer and isn't able to multitask that she's really not demonstrating that positive work ethic that I think comes from a, a focus on deep work. And none of those, whether it's about hours or balance from a work-life perspective or being able to work in a, in a deep work mindset, none of those are right or wrong, but they are different and if we're looking for work ethic and we leave it at that as a headline and don't drill down into within ISL talent or Goldman Sachs, what that looks like for our business, there's a good chance we have to get lucky to get people who are aligned on values. And then of course, if they don't see it in reality, and if we say, we don't care what hours you work, but when someone leaves at four o'clock, we make maybe just jovial remarks around them having a half day without them understanding where we're coming from and often for new employees they won't have that context and history there's a real danger that going back to that psychological safety they have their own view on things and make their own judgment and, and i think even more so in a more virtually orientated world those things you need to be intentional about you can't leave to chance and being able to fill in the gaps around the water cooler so another thing that a lot of founders need to think about is how they document those things. If they're 15 people, they work with us to hire two or three key salespeople and a couple of key tech people, bring them into an environment. They may have found the perfect person, however they define that. But when they're in that environment, if they're not helping them understand what life is like around here and this is the way we do things, there's a real danger that they fill in the gaps themselves and, and make judgments that are different than what you would hope or what you would see from someone that's been with you from day one and got the benefit of having that, whether it's in-person or virtual, but having much more time with you as a founder. Yeah, I mean, I remember how important it was to get solid onboarding. Um, one of my first, one of my first jobs out of uni, um, it was all in the office. Obviously, there was no uh, remote, <laughs> remote work then. Uh, and it was, it was all in the office, you know, um, five days a week, but even then the onboarding was so solid. It was so just on point, like, this is what we're about. This is what we do. This is why we do it. Blah, blah, blah. Here's how you fit in. Here's the role and so on. Um, like as in it was so, <clears throat> and then the amount of team building stuff that we did, like it was so good at making sure that you feel really embedded in a part of the team and a part of the company and the wider culture. And that was with us going in every day into the office and able to have these water cooler chats and everything else with other people, right? So it's a really good point you make because if if that, how much that helped while being in the office. Now, if that doesn't exist at all, when it's all virtual, I can just imagine that being a bit, a bit of a nightmare. And I have to be honest, I mean, I've been guilty of some of these mistakes, you know, myself as a, as a leader. Um, unfortunately, some of these things we don't get taught um, how to do these things and how, how to, I mean, I'm very happy we're having this conversation now and I'm hoping that our listeners will be taking away a lot of notes from this because these are things that we don't really get taught how to do. 
um, when we're starting a business. But it is it is so important. And when you mention points like this, I reflect back on some of my experience and I realize I think that's what that was one of the real key things that made a huge difference in terms of how I felt about the company and how I felt I belonged in the team. It was that solid onboarding that made such a big difference. And some of what I've my views on what makes for a good hiring process come from the way we've done with some super cool startups and having seen the good, bad and the ugly from the candidate side, there's no doubt so much of what I will talk about around hiring comes from building my own business and going through those experiences myself. So to a certain extent, you, you can't shortcut the experience of making the mistakes to learn from them. But yeah, there are some things that aren't obvious or apparent to you from the beginning. So even with the onboarding, I do quite a lot of workshops for accelerators and growth programs, people that are on investment readiness programs are looking to scale. And one of the things I'll talk about is that to you know, go back to the end of the, the talent methodology and nurturing talent, it's not onboarding that starts on day one. Arguably, there's a pre-boarding phase that some people forget about or overlook. Maybe there's five or six weeks from someone accepting your offer where they're super excited, super engaged to then starting and you running your first week playbook of good onboarding. If you're not inviting them into your Slack before that or to the company all hands or picking up the phone to them every week saying how you're doing so that when they start on day one they already feel part of the team you're missing an opportunity and that might not be obvious to people because they go from my recruiter has said they've accepted their offer great i've dropped them the employment contract they said they can start on the first of april brilliant there's an opportunity to really warm them up and build on that enthusiasm and excitement so that those first 30 60 90 days are much more likely to succeed but from a commercial perspective you're seeing them being productive sooner so the small investment you've done in those five six weeks pre-boarding pays off straight away after the end of the first month yeah that's a real good takeaway as well so let's talk a bit about that then um you mentioned quite a few times the transition between going from a startup to a scale up and kind of scaling up in that process. You also mentioned about how it's going to be different in terms of what the culture looks like early on versus a little bit later on and so on. So maybe let's start with the early on and then work out, move, work out across the journey. So with the early days in a startup, you know, if a couple of co-founders or one sort of founder or a few co-founders or whatever, and you getting these initial kind of hires around you, still building this initial kind of founding team, one of the really hard things to do at that point is to pause and stop what you're doing and actually say, right, what are we about? Because there are so many things, and I mean what I about from a team value perspective, because there's so many things going on. There are, you, know, whether you might be raising funding and trying to get this client and trying to service that client while you build tech in the background and do whatever. So many things being done at the same time and really way too many tasks compared to the amount of time you have and the amount of hours in the day as a founder. And you're already having to prioritize like crazy to make sure that you're able to just do those things. How do you fit this in and when should you start thinking about fitting this piece in to make sure that it's not too late uh, when it comes to values and culture? I, I recognize it's a challenge. There's definitely one other experience myself is we've, we've built ISL. The um, the starting point is important, and it may only be when you start to lose people, you realize there's the problem. So it's very much for me about having those touch points along the way. 
that in the early days, if you go back to what we're talking about, where the best teams make the best businesses and the flip side of that being, if you have a poor team and people that aren't right for you, it's going to destroy your ability to build a great business. Using that as a way to have the confidence to schedule the time and, you know, and, and broader issues around time management and prioritization. From a practical point of view, I think it's around having conversations with your founding team or your early team to agree how things work. I don't necessarily think you need to jump quickly into choosing your four values and spending three days somewhere nice in the country to country to define those. But you do need to at least have a conversation with your early members around the way things are done to make sure you're aligned and set on the same page. Depending on how many people you're bringing in, how quickly, but typically revisiting that as part of your quarterly review, maybe every three months in some way, maybe more explicitly every 12 months or so, those timescales feel about right to me to avoid pouring effort in stuff that isn't going to pay the bills straight away or isn't the funding that you need to grow the business, but not leaving it so long that you only realize it's an issue when it becomes a problem. I think that the the next stage when you start to scale properly, as I mentioned earlier, is, is probably around the, the managers you're bringing in. So if you're running a business of 30 people, you're probably still interviewing the majority, if not everybody that comes into business. But if you're running a business of 60 or 100, that's not so practical. So how confident are you that how confident are you the managers you've promoted are going to be not looking for what you need, but that you're aligned on what you're looking for? When we first... Wait, wait, sorry, not looking... Sorry, can we repeat that? Not looking for what you need, Yeah, that, but... Okay. They're, sorry, they're, they're not looking for simply what you tell them to look. So you should engage them in that process of agreeing what good looks like, but that it's aligned. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's not about me promoting you into a management role and saying, by the way, Mo, you need to hire for A, B, and C. Go on, go and do it. It is talking to you and saying, so Mo, what's important to us? Let's agree what that is. And even if I'm not there at the end of the process or the beginning of the process, let's both get to the point where we're confident that it doesn't really matter who we're sat and interview because we're going to be assessing against the same thing, albeit we'll be looking at it from slightly different perspectives. So things like, objective scorecards and consistent measures of someone's success will will help you to have a consistent entry process. The other point is around not being too assumptive and, and having checks and measures in place. So when our cell was scaling, we were around 35 people. And as part of that, we had brought in our first team leaders or managers, people that have been really good for us as salespeople that rightly or wrongly, you end up then putting into leadership roles. And for a couple of them, it worked out well. There was definitely an instant or two where I didn't have the mechanisms in place to understand where issues might be arising. And naturally, whether you feel you're hierarchical or not, as a founder or CEO, as you become a bit more distant and there's another layer of people between you and the new hires, people won't talk to you in the same way. Even if you don't walk into the office or jump onto a Zoom call with your ego, the title you have, the history you have in the business, a new hire coming in will look at you in a different way than that founding team member. So things like 
360 feedbacks, regular pulse surveys, doing skip level one-to-ones where you go and chat someone else can really effective ways to gather intelligence and get a feeling for what's going well, what might not be going so well, particularly when it comes to the, the culture and the values. And, and when would you start doing that sort of more elaborate work you're saying around the sort of the 40, 50 people mark? Or is it, would you judge it by number of employees, by amount of funding, by how would you kind of try to judge when to start doing that? I'm not sure I've got any hard and fast rules. The point where um, I've seen some people do it really well once they've got you know above 10, but maybe that's a founder who quite quickly delegate some of that leadership responsibility. Maybe they've got a COO who's looking after 70% of the employee by headcount. There'll be other CEO founders who will keep those direct reports and, and you know, want everybody to report into them. So there's there's things around how an org chart looks like and the other things that they're doing with their time and with their role that's important. One of the other things that comes to mind that I think my co-founder Henry and I did far too long in our business was sit down and look at the roles that we were doing as individuals there were far too many things we were overlapping on and as we started to scale we were both still going into same meetings and we had worked together for long enough that we were aligned on what the right thing was to say in a meeting or to look at when we were evaluating key decisions and there were also many things we were overlooking and when we sat down prompted by a coach to write our own job descriptions that was so useful to make sure that partly we were doing what we're good at and what we enjoy rather than simply what we'd ended up doing as founders and being a bit of a dog's body but to avoid that duplication and i remember the the week after we did that I stopped going to half the meetings with the team here that I'd gone to before. So it freed up massive amounts of my time to go and do other things. It also avoided that mom and pop type thing of someone asking Henry something, not getting the answer they wanted, and then turning to me because as part of working our own job descriptions, we'd looked at the, the racy within the business, so the responsibilities, the accountabilities, who was consulted on certain things and who was informed, communicated that to the team, so they knew it was an issue in a certain area, Henry had accountability. If it was in a different area, I had accountability. And that clarity we gave to everybody from a decision-making perspective, a leadership perspective, was, was really important. So perhaps straight away from some of the stuff we're talking about, but from a personal perspective, that's a really useful exercise, I think, for founders to go through. Because when you, biz- when you build the business on day one, when you say, well, you do a bit of this, you do a bit of that, the reality 12 months later is, probably very different. You've understood much more about how you're working, where your value is. So as well as looking at the broader team, those founders talking about what they're doing day for day and whether you're using OKRs or some other way to measure your impact, having something with some accountability for you as leaders and, and for the, the rest of the team can doesn't directly tie into the culture and the values, but can really help to demonstrate the value of each individual in the business. So uh, for those listening who are not aware what OKRs are, the subjective key results, and if one of the ways to set up to, to do key per- as a key performance indicator, right? Yeah, as I felt personally as founder and a lot of the founders that I talk to as clients and friends, it's sometimes difficult to get to the end of the day 
and to know if you've had a good day or a bad day. Because there's so many things you're doing and some of the stuff is much more tangible than others. And you are, you design your own role to a certain extent versus an employee that's come in with a much more clearly defined playbook and, and set of measures. So something like objectives and key results where you're set out maybe over a 90 day period, what you want to move the needle on and how you're going to measure tangibly the impact on that can help if you're coming together for those quarterly reviews to show the value to the team. It was one thing that I struggled with for a long time where I was becoming more external facing in the business to help build relationships with investors and clients. That meant I was out of the office a lot. To someone new coming into our business who hadn't spent a lot of time with me, did they think that I was out there, you know, enjoying cocktails in the sun and maybe on occasions I got to do that. But also when we looked at the OKRs and the impact of what I was meant to be doing, it was clearer partly to myself, but also to others around where the value was and the, the comms around that can be really important. So another thing for I did for a while was every Sunday evening, writing emails to the team, sharing what I'd done the last week or what I was planning. So partly that was accountability for myself, but giving them clarity in a way they might not have picked up on it naturally if I wasn't in the office around what I was doing and going back into the psychological safety, putting it out there and saying, Last week, I really struggled with this, invited feedback, questions, and I think more so than relying on bumping into someone over lunch or sitting next to them, which wasn't so practical, it was a way to help that two-way feedback and interaction. Brilliant. Um, I want to quickly wrap up the previous part where we were talking about the uh, roles and responsibilities uh, for founders, especially you mentioned that you and your co-founder sat down and did, did that exercise. I'm quite curious, a bit of a technical question here. Um, when you were outlining those roles and responsibilities and what you're doing kind of day to day and week to week and month to month, did you break those down into different categories like, you know, firefighting versus trying new things versus business as usual, or did you just kind of outline them? I know it's a bit of a technical question, but I feel like it might help if someone's going through the exercise. It was, it was a while back now, so I can't remember the exact process. What we need, when we're working with clients now, there's a process we go through that I think would map well to what Emma and I went through, whether we actually did it or not. So a lot of people start off when they're, they come to me and they say, Alan, we've got three million pounds investment. Our investor and me agree that we need to grow sales function. So we're going to hire a VP of sales. We've got a hundred thousand pound budget. Can you go and find us people? We want 10 years SaaS. Three years climate tech, we you know, wherever the other requirements are. So they start with the skills, or even worse, the experience people are looking for, and then maybe they start to think about only when that person's there with them. Oh, well, what's Jane or Johnny going to do today? You know, and, and map out a plan for them because part of that is taking responsibilities that were either from you as a founder and uh, or simply weren't being done before. Maybe like hiring and scaling a sales team wasn't something that happened before because you didn't have the resources. And then the final step, and it's a pyramid, which is why I'm moving my hands like that as the way I show it to people. At the top of the pyramid is the what I would call the, the why of the role, referencing one of your earlier comments or the purpose. And a good test on that, I find, is in 18 months' time, how would you know this person has been successful? So if you and I were walking around the block and you were saying to me, Alan, brilliant, job well done, 
what are the things that come to mind? Some of them are really tangible, going back to something like OKRs. There'll be some key results there. You've scaled us from 1 to 10 million ARR. We've now got five Fortune 500 logos as part of our case studies. You've successfully hired five people, all of whom have hit target in the last quarter. There'll be some things that will be left tangible and, and, and maybe not measured in a spreadsheet. Whichever angle they're coming from, there are things there that will recognize the value of the role. My starting point when I'm talking to founders is to start at the top of the pyramid. No surprise that we've chosen pyramid because it's where you want to be aiming for and where you want to get to. Start with the purpose of the role, then start to explore what they'll be doing. That would partly be what you're doing that you're then delegating and letting go of. That will also be filling in the gaps for stuff that just hadn't been covered by the organization before because you had a lack of resources. And the then flow down into the skills and both hard and technical skills and traits and behaviors. And I think doing it that way, the reason that the pyramid works is because it broadens out at the bottom. I think it helps you to have a more diverse talent pool, but allows you to track back into those top points 12 or 18 months down the line, depending on the, the journey and the pace you're on as to what good looks like. If you can communicate that to people before they join you, they'll feel much more excited about the journey they're looking to go on. They'll be able to articulate their value to you. If it becomes part of the onboarding process, part of the review process, this this all joins up so that it's not one thing for hiring, one thing for onboarding, and one thing for progression and promotion. There's a consistent story rather than a job spec created in isolation or stolen from Google or your last employer that you hire against and then you forget about until it comes to making the replacement of that person nine months later because they're uh, they're leaving because things didn't work out. Um, so I I think what you do need to do, going back to the founder question in particular, is of course make sure that the business has covered what it needs to. So when Henry and I went through that conversation, we agreed that as a result of our job descriptions, more broadly, he was going to be more focused on the day-to-day, -day, the operational and the people side of things. I was going to be a bit more focused on the strategic, some of the client relationships, and perhaps a bit more longer term in terms of my focus. We also saw there was a gap around the finance piece, which caused us to change our accountants and find someone that could be that kind of interim or fractional FD CFO for us because it wasn't part of our skill set and was something that was causing the business issues in some way because the issues were partly overlapping on some of the day-to-day -day stuff but the overlicking bit of it was really important so probably you want to test that against what the business needs rather than just what you get done but do the two together it will help you work out the gaps that you either hire for or outsource and yeah make sure you've got covered well yeah and making a very kind of context dependent based on where you are as a business as opposed to just taking some random advice on the web and being like yes we should do this Makes makes a lot yeah. makes a lot of sense. I love the pyramid approach. That's really really cool. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And and I feel, I feel like being able to tie it all together into one thing. So, you hire the person. It's not just about when you're hiring them and nurturing them, but it's also about the onboarding. You think about that. It by by thinking about it this way, essentially you think about all of that stuff in advance, and what you're going to measure them against. Um, one of the struggles around all these things, and <coughs> excuse me. If you don't have a, a COO in place or a uh, you know head of HR or a chief of staff or or something in place, the person that would look at a lot of these processes and a lot of those things, 
one of the tough things is to actually dedicate the time to sit down and go through a lot of that stuff yourself as a founder. Um, I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, is this something that founders should always do themselves or is this something that they is better to hire people for or is there a kind of an optimum place in the middle where they work with external um, kind of fractional staff or agencies or whatever or consultants? Where, where, where would you kind of, and I, I know you might be a little bit biased, but um, kind of, kind of without, without, without that in mind, um, thinking of it uh, as how you went through the founding journey yourself. And the data shows that the head of people stroke talent, maybe the COO responsibility for the people side has been hired earlier over maybe the COVID effect clouds this somewhat, but up until that point, we're starting to become an earlier hire, something that it wouldn't be unusual for a company to consider at 15 or 20 employees whereas previously maybe it was when they only got to the 50 to 100 point. So that's something to be aware of. Some of the things that would influence my thinking would be your personal background as a founder, the um, the scale of the hiring. Clearly, if you're going to be hiring 30 people a year, that's quite different than if you're going to grow by five in the next 12 months as to how much time it's going to take. There are businesses we talk to. I'm running a lunch tomorrow for... 10 heads of people and talent and we are some of those are clients of ours so we work as a recruiter with those people and focus on a certain section of what we do for other clients they've come to me and said alan we're considering hiring a head of people or talent but also been referred to you because we feel maybe you can cover some of that for us and like you say i'm, I'm biased in that i'm gonna show them the value in what we do but also recognize there are definitely occasions when they're much better off having that internal resource in-house. So if they're going to be having a relatively consistent amount of hiring, then maybe that internal resource is much better. If they need to hire eight people in the next three months, there's no way that person is going to be able to come in and make the hires, but also help them with some of the thinking and the strategy that we've been talking about here. So as with anything, it's a, it's a balance. I broadening it out into conversation, whether it's either the people and talent and operations function or sales and tech, the more progressive founders, I believe, are ones that don't default straight away to one solution. So they don't start with, we've got a budget of 100,000, therefore we take a VP of sales. They consider taking a couple of junior people, some SDRs and a go-to-market advisor, a fractional chief revenue officer. And using that to blend seniority with resources that are affordable. So the the broader point definitely to look at all the options and consider different perspectives. Engage with recruiters who can give you a view on what else happens, but your advisors, your network, and your team as well. There's plenty of startups I've worked with that have the founders had one view and they've sat down and talked to their team and perhaps shown them the provisional org chart for the next 12 or 18 months. And one of their team has said, I see you're looking for somebody to cover ops. Tell me more about that. And they've moved from a different function. And everybody's been brilliantly happy because that person was 100% a match on the values and the culture. Maybe it took a bit more time and effort to develop them with the skill set for that new role. But rather than going and making a new hire, and as much as our value is de-risking that hire, Anybody new coming in is, of course, presenting a risk to the business. And going back into 
the whole talent piece not simply being about recruitment and retention one of the other really valuable exercises is to map the talent you have within the business look at their performance look at their potential but don't leave the org chart sat on the boardroom floor and something that doesn't get shared with the team every three months or whatever the the sensible cadence is for your business and the journey you're on say to the team over the next six months these are the roles we're having planned they might step up they might know somebody i did my business a couple of years ago we lost a good person on the marketing side of things we talked to the team about how we're looking to replace it and one of the team said well we need to go and talk to harriet who had worked for us as a placement student a couple of years ago and i would have got to that point myself but the nudge from them the engagement from them maybe pick up the time much more quickly and you know harriet is one of I think three people in our business that have worked for us previously and come back to have worked for us in a slightly different role. And well, I, very cool. I know those people, of course, yeah, but the act of talking to the team about what we're planning helps people to say, isn't that a role brilliant for Freya? Or wouldn't it be great if we could rehire Jake into that role? So there's the, the broader yeah. point around engaging with the people around you rather than having to hold all the decisions like many other decisions you've got as a founder and, uh, and think you have to do everything yourself. Yeah, and also you get a buy-in right away, which is great. So, you know, it's a, it's a really a win-win for everyone. Um, yeah. So, on the KPIs and OKRs side of things, um, can we maybe touch a bit on that? Uh, is there a one-size-fits-all framework for all companies of all sizes in terms of how to set those key performance indicators, whatever, whatever, whatever you want to call them? No, I think the, the one size fits all approach is that you need to have something that sets out your strategy, gives people clarity on what good looks like within the business and has a mechanism where it flows down into their role. I was at a event run by a network called Boardwave a few weeks ago. They talked about something called a V2 Mom, which I think came from Mark Benhoff and Salesforce. There's similarities with that OKRs and I'm sure there's different tools out there. So I don't think the it's it's absolutely around the, the mechanism you use, but the principle rather than the specific tool of of giving that clarity to people, particularly as you scale and it becomes less natural, they they understand what you're all about and what the business is all about through a serendipitous moment is really important. We've we've used AKRs about ISL talent. Perhaps the business we are today, we don't feel the need to be so methodical as to how we work through them. But one of the things that I was definitely guilty of doing was learning about OKRs and people saying, you need to do them every year, you need to do them every quarter, put them in place. And they did get sat in a drawer gathering dust. The the difference and the how they really came brought to life was two things from memory. One was not talking about them on the first day of the quarter and day 90 of the quarter and assuming that we would be kept on track along the way or people would know where we were. So better communication. And I set a goal of making sure that my leadership team at the time, five or six people, every one of them over that quarter had seven moments of interaction around the OKRs. Now I quite quickly realized that me sitting down with all six of them seven times over the course of what's the math 42 times it wouldn't leave a lot of time for other things so what we ended up with was a system where we sat down as a team the start and the end of the quarter 
we also then had a review halfway through the quarter, which I framed as the the halftime team talk, which wasn't necessarily about whether we were playing a good first half of the quarter or a bad first half, but it was that we wanted to win the game. We defined at the start of the quarter what winning looked like. At halftime, we're 3-0 up, 2-1 down. Wherever we are, let's review the data and then let's get back on track for the second half. And the other point was then to help my time, but also allow them different voices, pair them off over the quarter. And after the first couple of weeks in, a pair, a pair, a pair spoke to each other, checked on their OKRs that they needed help and support. And then three weeks later, the pair switched around and they spoke to people. And that also plays into, I guess, a broader point as a founder, as you scale, some of us will be control freaks. Some of us will be happy to let go of the responsibility, whichever angle you're coming from, you need to design, I guess, to a certain extent yourself out of a job, but you need to make sure that you are giving the autonomy to people, but avoiding chaos, give them the clarity on what good looks like. And that's where something like OKRs can really help to give the clarity, but give the autonomy. That's one of the key things that's going to motivate people and allow them to, to flourish and, and really make an oversized contribution. Yeah, I smiled when you said uh, control freaks. Um, I've been trying. I've been learning and getting, hopefully, getting better at, at delegating and and learning to make myself uh, redundant in in whatever, whatever project or whatever thing that I'm <laughs> that I do. Um, tough, <clears throat> tough. Yeah, but but getting there slowly, slowly but surely learning. Um, yeah, the. I love that approach, the halftime talk uh, for the quarter. I th- it's really, really cool. Um, and I like the analogy with football because it's just a, it's something that everyone can relate to. And I really like that. Um, I think there's power in in strong kind of analogies or metaphors and, and things like that. Um, yeah, agreed. The quarterly goals can be a little bit tough to set, to, to strike the balance between ambitious and doable. Um, any thoughts around kind of how to go about that as a founder? I know I've spoken to some founders who I've been chatting about their pitch decks and giving them feedback and they set those big grand ambitious goals and then six months after they've got investment, I'd be sitting down with them having a coffee or lunch and they're saying, bloody hell, the numbers that we put on there have now become our target with measuring success. So you do need to be careful and, and strike the right balance where their investors were holding them to account against those uh, those crazy numbers that they used to gain the investment. So there, there needs to be that consistency over time. I've definitely, um, sometimes you, you, know, you go too far, sometimes you don't go far enough. It, and, and some of us will be more optimistic on others around what we can achieve in a given period of time. I don't have a views in terms of how you would necessarily understand what the right thing is, apart from to say that it, it comes back to that feedback loop and making sure that you are engaging with the team and with your wider network and as part of that reflection saying so we set ourselves a goal of delivering one million pounds or winning five customers how did that go and building into that partly how ambitious do we think that goal was in light of that clearly if we've nailed all 10 of our goals for next quarter maybe there's a rationale for making them more challenging if we failed on them i've been in business before where we've had goals set over the course, so we've been a million miles on them from day one, and yet they're blindly repeated or 5% added on for the following quarter. 
So from an employee's perspective, you have to recognize how demotivational that can be and, and making sure that you're not setting goals out the gate that if people were speaking honestly and going back to that psychological safety, you should invite that feedback from beginning with, they would say there's no way that's achievable. So even in the act of setting the goals, don't set them in isolation. Maybe you don't make it a democratic thing. One of the um, the kind of the, the mantras that I really like within a business is that everybody has a voice, but maybe not a vote. So I don't believe that running an organization of 30 people where everybody contributes equally on every topic is, I've never seen that work. And you may not go and get everybody's voice in the same way every time. Maybe it's one-to-ones with your team and a survey across the business. Maybe it's avoiding too much hierarchy and picking five people randomly across the business to sit down with whatever it is, then capturing people's um, perspective on stuff. So one of the things that came to mind that we did when we were around about 30 people was um, in relation to some feedback we got. So someone was leaving and as part of our process, we did an exit interview with them and asked them what the issues were. And they talked about not feeling they had a voice. So we'd failed on that. Everybody has a voice, but not a vote. They talked about feeling the leadership team was a bit insular and not very inclusive in their approach and maybe was a bit too much around group thing, kind of a bit myopic on certain things. And as with any things, this feedback was um, was hurtful, but there was truth in it. And so, of course, it's easy to say, well, you're leaving, I don't care about you, so you know, I'm not interested. But we listened to the feedback and the the next month, one of the things we put in place was every month we would have five people from across the business sitting down with me and over time, one of the other key leaders and talking about what had gone well, what hadn't gone so well and what new ideas did they have. And it was designed so that every over a quarter, everybody in the business came to one of those meetings. And the first meeting we had, one of the questions I asked people to think about before they came in was, if we were 10 times bolder, what would we be doing differently? And the idea that came from the five or six people around the table were, were brilliantly um, articulated, thought through, and ones that I wouldn't have thought of on my own. And one of the ideas that came from that was to rebrand as a business. And six months later, we launched our rebrand. That wouldn't have happened if I hadn't taken the time to create a space where people could contribute ideas, set the context that this is around 10 times bolder. This isn't around incrementally, let's do 5% better next month. Of course, that was still part of the plan, but this is an environment for being bolder. And if you say rebrand, I'm not going to shoot that down. At some point, it's going to need to be justified and make sure it's a thought through business decision. And if it's not, I will then close that feedback loop and come back to you and say, great that you said a rebrand, did you know that's going to cost us £100,000 and we need to see a return investment of 10x that and we're not confident it's going to give the million. So there's an articulation of why we're not doing it, which is as important as moving forward on the positive ones. I think going back to people and saying, we heard your idea, not necessarily framing it as a bad idea, but when we've looked at moving that through a process and putting that into execution, it falls down on these areas. So if we're going to do it, we need to be more confident on these points. What can we do to explore that? Gather more valuable data so that 
that feedback loop can be really important on this topic, I think. Brilliant. Everybody has a voice, but maybe not a vote, but also closing the feedback loop. Um, and yeah, that's brilliant. I, I, I wish I met you, uh, a long, a long time ago to help us out with a few bits and pieces. Um, <laughs> I, I think I, if I seem wise and maybe it's only because I've made so many mistakes over the years that I, uh, you yeah. know, I've, I've learned from some of them, but I'm sure there's many more that I'll still repeat in the future. No, of course, of course. Um, I want to go, I want to dig deeper, but we don't have much time. So I think, I think we'll have to, um, call a day here, uh, with a heavy heart because there's a lot, there's a quite a bit more I want to touch on. So may, maybe we'll do it another time or we'll just talk about it separately and everybody else can be jealous, um, about it. So, <laughs> but no, Alan, I really want to thank you so much for making the time for this, for coming on. Um, incredible conversation, very insightful. You clearly know your stuff when it comes to um, hiring and talent and, and uh, just helping out with the team front for startups and scale-ups. Um, so it, it just just maybe really quickly, um, if you can, uh, with I, I say talent, um, first of all, how do you pronounce it? Second of all, where do people find you uh, if they want to get in touch with you? Uh, and then last but not least, is there any other shout out that you want to give to to anything that you work on right now? Yeah, sure. So ISL Talent, we're all about working with startups and scale-ups and founders on a, a growth um, a growth mission. So you, anybody that's building a business that should or does know that people are going to be a big part of that, if they want a sounding board on their future hiring plans, maybe they're getting up around investment and they know that's going to mean some new people going into the business. They want a bit of insight as to how others have done it, a bit of guidance on what they're going to spend or what the things they should focus on. I'm always happy to chat to people that are building, particularly people that are building in the space that you'll be talking to. Also my team, of course, the other side of things is people as candidates. So if people are looking for work and want to explore the startup world, whether it's around commercial or tech product leadership, really happy to chat to them and either help them directly, giving them jobs for some of the brilliant startups we work with or simply some advice. And I'm always happy to give my time, whether it's people jumping onto a LinkedIn live I might run, looking at some of my content, direct messages, WhatsApps, or hopefully getting a chance to meet up with people in person. So LinkedIn is where you'll find me personally. Alan Fairley, I think I'm probably the only one there, or hopefully we'll one of the more. put the link in the description as well. Yeah, brilliant. Much Absolutely. appreciated, Mo. Yeah. So, uh, and I think the other thing is that we've, we looked back at last year and, um, where our new clients came from then a lot of those were from chairs investors board advisors so if anybody's out there in the broader ecosystem and working with scaling businesses and knows they have a gap around the people and talent side and would like to talk a bit more about how we might be able to help to their portfolio then i'd love to chat to them in more detail absolutely brilliant so it's islTalent.com, right yep Brilliant. And Alan Furley on LinkedIn. We'll leave the links in the description for all of those uh, for people to reach out, get in touch and, and follow some of the incredible insights that Alan shares on LinkedIn, by the way, definitely worth to check out. Um, so yeah, Alan, again, thank you. And uh, I'm looking forward to speaking again to you, my friend. Yeah, also, I think it's a, a brilliant thing. You're creating a stronger narrative on. So we're looking forward to seeing this content, but also following more of what you're doing on the show. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you. See you soon. Cheers, mate. That was Good For Profit with your host, Mo. 
Thank you very much for listening. Support us. Please like, share, subscribe, and send it to whoever you think will benefit from this episode or will be interested in listening to it. We are, of course, in the early days and we're trying to grow the podcast. And so every share and every like and every comment does go a very long way for us. So thank you very much for listening. And if you have any feedback, please let us know if you'd like certain topics covered or if you have entrepreneurs or investors or ecosystem leaders that you'd like to see on the podcast, feel free to get in touch with us. The link will be in the description below this episode where you can leave feedback and also get in touch with us to let us know if there's somebody you'd like to see on the pod. Even if you have no direct connection with them, just let us know and our team will get on it to try and get them on here. Thank you very much for listening once again and hope to see you in the next one.